This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're foraging. From Prospect Park to an iPhone app, what does it mean to find our own food? We've recorded, I think, over 1,300 species of fungi occurring in New York City. You know, my ingredients are making themselves, and so that rather than having the stress of needing to source the things I need, I can just walk out my back door and I can have them. Foraging overall is born out of living with the land and with the seasons by indigenous people. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. Really excited to introduce you to my guest this week. Uh, she's somebody I've known for quite a while, and and in a lot of ways, I think our entrepreneurial journeys have have uh, moved along similar paths. And so it's always fun to check in and hear what she's been up to. Uh, Margaret Niamumbo is the founder and CEO of Kahawa eighteen ninety three Coffee. Margaret, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ethan. So let's start with the backstory, which, you know, obviously is important in any food business, but particularly in yours. How did you come to start the company? So I was raised on a coffee farm. In a way, I've always been very close to coffee on the growing side, but I reintroduced myself into the coffee world about four or five years ago, um, I was working in New York. I was working on Wall Street at an investment bank. And coffee was how I stayed awake uh, through the long nights and early mornings. And it was it was a foil. But during the weekends, I really got interested in the New York uh, coffee scene, which is very, very diverse. And during that time, specialty coffee had really exploded Paying $5 for a cup of coffee was becoming very common. People were really interested in origins. And as I learned more and more about coffee from different countries, I realized that Kenyan coffee wasn't that available um, in even in New York coffee shops. And the, the more I dug about it, I realized that the connection between the farmers and consumers was not that easy to make. I remember you know, being at the farm and the farmers receiving very little for their crop, but also having trouble connecting to the market. So there was a disconnect there between a growing specialty coffee market and farmers still really struggling. And for me in particular, it was uh, the idea that a lot of the labor in coffee came from women and they didn't get well compensated. So I was really interested in the supply chain now that I was familiar with the end of it. Um, and I knew the beginning of it, I was interested in what are the other sort of things involved in in coffee and how can I um, change it? So that was sort of the origins of my return to coffee. That's it's an amazing story. I mean, coming around full circle, I guess. Would you, could you would you talk a little more about the what happens on the farm or what you remember as a kid seeing coffee being harvested and and sold? What what did that look like or what what are those processes like? 
Yeah, so coffee is a unique crop in because um, it's a once a year crop. So it grows um, on the farm throughout the year, sort of just ripening the fruit. You know, it flowers, it develops, ripens. And then there's this very tiny window uh, where you can harvest it. And then once you harvest it within 24 hours, you got to process it. And it's a fruit. So I remember playing in the coffee fields and, you know, eating the fruit. It's essentially a berry. Um, and it's the seed inside of the berry that does get processed uh, into the coffee that we drink. And, and one of the interesting things about coffee is because it grows in the mountains. So it grows in a pretty steep areas. And so you'd have what I remember is in the morning, um, you would trek up the mountain or rather the hill to go up the hill, harvest the coffee, and then walk down the hill um, to take it to the processing station before it ferments. And you're usually like, you're living at 7 a.m. or 6 a.m. in the morning. You want to be back down before noon because as it gets hot, the coffee starts to ferment and you start to lose the quality. So it's a very, very uh, time-sensitive crop, even at that stage, and especially when it's still a fruit. And then it gets processed. And from there, all the coffee was exported. Um, so there wasn't sort of a local drinking culture. Coffee was really just a cash crop. We sent the coffee away and then waited for months for the money to come back. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I, I guess people may not realize that uh, coffee isn't native to East Africa or, or to the area around Ethiopia, which borders Kenya. And, um, and, and there's a very long history, obviously, of it growing there, but... <laughs> But it has, as you mentioned earlier, has struggled to, to sort of achieve that high value that we've seen from, you know, in coffee from other places like Ethiopia or Central America. So what do you what do you think is happening there? Why why is Kenyan coffee uh, not perceived in the same way as coffee from other origins? Oh, actually, even it's the other way around. Um, Kenyan coffee is the most valuable coffee in the market. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> and that's that's why it's such a in, in a way it's a you know, it's a dilemma of sorts because, um, so if you look at the, in, in the coffee market, Kenyan coffee features usually, you know, three X to five X, um, in terms of pricing, uh, compared to other origins, even Ethiopia. So if you were to go into the green market right now, talk to any importer, Kenyan coffee is the most expensive coffee. So that's kind of like, what's interesting about that disconnect between the prices that coffee Kenyan coffee is fetching um, in the market versus what the farmers are getting. And that's what we were trying to fix. Um, and part of that is, is sort of, uh, even though Kenyan coffee is uh, sort of well-celebrated, well-regarded, um, it's still such a small part of the market. We produce less than 1% of all coffee in the world. So part of the pricing there is the, the, the supply isn't there. And because it's this sort of farmers not getting paid and then they're leaving the crop. So the supply has been diminishing. In fact, this year um, they announced that Kenya might actually be delisted from the global market if the supply continues declining. So it's kind of an interesting um, point uh, in history for so this, you know, crop that is considered in, in Kenyan coffee is considered analogous to French wine. So Kenya has a similar uh, place uh, in the in the coffee industry like France has for wine and for this to be something that we might lose in my generation. So it's a very concerning p point in time. 
Could you would you talk a little more about that? I mean, it's it's so interesting to hear you, especially given your your Wall Street uh, experience, your Wall Street background, to talk about this on a commodity level. How does I guess what does it mean that that Kenya might be delisted? What's the significance of that? And and uh, how how are companies like yours or or your company specifically? Um, I don't know, addressing that issue. Yeah. So the, the, when you think about how, and you probably know this, Ethan, from the spice trade, right, where the trades aren't developed and you're almost creating the market for them, right, in, in some in certain areas because there isn't a formal market. So there isn't a way to price or trade things. So in, in coffee, uh, because it's traded on the commodities exchange um, and all the pricing um, is linked to specific exchanges. So Kenya itself has its an auction, and that's where the farmers sell their their their, pro, their, their coffee produce. So if Kenya is delisted from uh, the global exchange, it it means that farmers sort of lose that uh, stable market for their crop because Kenyan coffee now, in a way, there isn't a way for traders to formally trade the crop and that creates a lot of inefficiencies a black market of sorts um and in some countries that uh, some, some countries in latin america that are not listed it means that a lot of that coffee essentially gets smuggled into a neighboring country where it can be traded uh internationally so there's benefits to being uh, a formally traded commodity that's supported uh, by the country um, and so being delisted really puts farmers in a very, very precarious position. So what we're doing uh, when I think about Kahawa and our role, first, it's, uh, you know, marketing Kenyan coffee and, uh, you know, creating the relevance. Part of what's happened with, again, Kenyan coffee being really expensive, that's why you don't see it. It's losing relevance in the market because if consumers are not getting a, a chance to taste it and really you know, get familiar with it the way that, you know, every coffee shop has an Ethiopian offering. Um, so consumers are really not familiar with it. And so they really shy away from it. And over time, it loses relevance in the market. So what we're trying to do is really keep that relevance and keep consumers interested in the origin um, and, and really educate them. And that way, farmers can always have a market for their crop. And the other, the other thing that we're doing is creating sort of an alternative market where we are buying directly from the farmers and getting them, uh, you know, fairer prices. What's, uh, what would you, how would you describe the flavor of Kenyan coffee? What, what makes it distinctive from other origins? So Kenyan coffee, uh, the, it's the variety. So there's sort of three things that make taste uh, in coffee, uh, influence the taste in coffee. One of them is the variety. So with wine, you know, we're familiar with, different grapes and what that translates into in terms of a cup. And so you have the variety, then you have the soil type, and then you have the microclimate. Uh, so what's what they've found is uh, Kenya grows a specific variety called the SL28, which was developed in the 30s specifically because of its uh, cup profile and also disease resistance. And, and that cup profile has a very um, interesting whiny and black currant notes, very citric, very lively. Um, any, if you ask any coffee connoisseur, they, in, in a table of, you know, a hundred coffees, uh, they'll be able to pick out a Kenyan coffee. That's uh, how distinct it is in the cup. And they've tried to reproduce this cup profile in other countries. They've taken it to 
Colombia, they've tried it in Peru, in Brazil. They're actually unable to reproduce it because of the specific soil and microclimate uh, uh, sort of combination that produces that cup. Wow. That's really, really lively. When you drink it, it's almost like not coffee. It's like a blend of wine and coffee. Wow, so interesting. Does that does that mean you you might drink it differently? Uh, like, are there food pairings or other ways that you might that you might drink the coffee rather than just like a cup in the morning? <laughs> um, I think it pairs well. So I, I think more so how you might want to brew it. Um, so it's best brew. And again, when you when you start when you start off with a coffee, the first part is essentially it's an it's an ingredient, right? So. When you get it from the farm, it's an ingredient. And then when you're roasting it, you're transforming it. So depending on how you roast it, you might roast it light, medium, and dark. So if you're roasting it darker, you're getting something, you know, fuller, heavier bodied. But if you want it to kind of taste something closer to the fruit, um, you want to roast it a medium a light. And then you want to brew it uh, using a pour over. So either Chemex or a V60 or Kalita Wave. Um, and then, so the filter, uh, removes some of the oils that you would normally get with a French press. And so you get a lot of clarity of this sort of, you, it's almost like you're tasting the berry, but in liquid form. Um, yeah. so it's, it's a mix of how you prepare it and how it's roasted. Wow. Uh, but it's done really well. Uh, and now with a lot of new tools in specialty coffee, you get to really taste uh, the coffee as if you are kind of eating the fruit. You're talking about coffee as if uh, you have been dealing with it your entire life, which I guess in, in some ways you have. But but professionally, yeah. you came to it fairly recently. So what was what was that transition like? How hard was it uh, to leave your your Wall Street job and and kind of take the plunge to start the company? Yeah, I mean, uh, this question is always interesting to me because uh, I. It's one of those snap judgments that you make, you know, when you go to the office and you're like, what am I doing? Like, I am very passionate about entrepreneurship. So a little bit of background, um, sort of growing up in, you know, uh, families. So my parents were farmers and entrepreneurs, and they were very, very keen about making sure that we got educated and got office jobs because those were more stable. So they're always talking about how entrepreneurship is very risky. It's always, you know, oh, it's, it's always very risky and, and, and uh, not as stable. So they were very keen on educating us and making sure we had sort of stable professional jobs. And so I, in a way, I got to the, to the top of the mountain that they wanted me to get, which is go to the best schools, get the best education, get the best job. And I think once I had that and I, I kind of was thinking about, but I think genetically I was predisposed <laughs> to be an entrepreneur. So I had an itch to build something. And when I kind of chanced on coffee and, and, and I got really intrigued by what was happening in specialty where people were getting interested in, in origins, uh, it just kind of clicked. Um, and at the time I had another artificial deadline that I had for myself. I think being in business school. So when I was at Harvard business school, uh, we, we got to do a lot of experiments. So they may, they have you build a business. They have you, um, kind of exposed to different businesses. And I, that's when I started getting really interested in, um, entrepreneurship as a potential path. Uh, so I went to wall street, which is a typical post, 
MBA career path, but I still had this itch to build something. And my artificial deadline was that I was approaching 30 and I always wanted to do something uh, by the time I was 30. So that, that was really the, the push that I needed uh, to, 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 to go into entrepreneurship. It wasn't as scary as you would think. And I think part of that is that because I had this sort of education or work experience, I felt like I could always, you know, come back if I wanted. I could always find a job if I need one. Um, so this wasn't like a way that, uh, this wasn't that I couldn't find a job or keep a job. This was more like, I want to do something and this kind of gives me the freedom to do that. And I'm passionate about it. And it just, coffee is addictive actually as a, as a, as an industry, there's so much depth because you have, if you're nerdy about the economics, which I was, you have that. If you're nerdy about sort of the tasting notes, the brewing, you have that. If you're nerdy about sustainability and, um, you know, green, they have that. So coffee has sort of like a lot of things that I already was interested in. Um, and so this kind of gives me a really good platform to work on uh, on those things at different levels and have the right impact. Yeah. Well, uh, did you find that there was much uh, crossover between the work that you're doing on Wall Street and and building and running the company or, or was it really starting from scratch? Uh, I would say it was starting from scratch. <laughs> uh, it's when you're starting because uh, I was dealing with sort of mature uh, companies that were, you know, almost public or public. Um, so they were operating on a different um, level. But I think the one experience when I, I used to cover or I used to evaluate retail companies, retail and consumer companies. So I was pretty familiar with the life cycle of a, a consumer company. Um, and I knew kind of essentially where you get to or what are, what are the ingredients that make a good consumer company. And what was interesting is actually something that you may or may not know about coffee, uh, but the Coffee industry is right now majority owned by private equity, uh, which I found really fascinating at the time because uh, private equity usually comes into an industry when that industry is mature and there's a lot of money to be made. And there's this contrast between sort of struggling farmers and the thriving private equity profits in coffee. So I always found that some that dynamic to be interesting uh, case study. Uh, what what do your parents think of the business as it stands now? I mean, maybe they were, <laughs> maybe they didn't love your decision to start the company, but but you've been around now for is it five years almost? Yeah, four five years. Yeah, uh, yeah no, you're right. They were not thrilled. They were like, the idea was for you to run away from <laughs> as far away as possible from coffee and you're back. Uh, but actually, uh, my parents are pretty involved. Um, they are very very supportive and in a way they're retired right and so this is their retirement gig and and my, my dad sort of likes to be on the farm and take care of the crops and he's really in a way um uh you know a general a general manager on the ground in in helping helping us on the sourcing size and, and organizing the local stuff so they're very very involved and uh they, they're kind of really surprised i think my parents were always supportive of things that I did. Um, and so they were like, okay, you think this is the right decision? We'll support you. So I think that that was really helpful to have that kind of support uh, from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, it makes such a big difference. I, I have been through a similar journey with my parents. My mother sometimes listens to the podcast, so I'm not going to... Anyway, no, <laughs> I think I think that's there's like a natural hesitation early on among uh, parents, especially, but close relatives who want to see you succeed. And, and they, they see all of the risks 
Uh, and, and at some point you just gotta, I don't know, keep, keep moving forward and, and convince them over time, I guess. Okay. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's also, I mean, it, it, you never know how things are going to turn out. Um, but I think, um, you know, it, it takes a while, but once they kind of see the passion, um, you know, and the, the development, then they, you know, they'll, they'll get, they get, <laughs> they'll get in line <laughs> somehow. Were there, get <laughs> were there other, uh, other ideas for a business that you thought about other, other foods or, or other businesses entirely kind of in that uh, theme of entrepreneurship that you were talking about earlier, or did you always know it was going to be coffee? I actually didn't have any other ideas. Um, and that's why I didn't start, you know, in business school, we, we did have the opportunity to do something. Um, I, I, I couldn't, I didn't have anything that I wanted to do uh, a particular crop. Um, if I was actually going to do something, it was going to be tea because we did grow up drinking tea. So in Kenya, part of, part of sort of the, the coffee history is that it's a colonial crop. It was kind of brought in 1893 and it was, you, you could only grow coffee if you were sort of a white settler. So natives were not allowed to grow coffee. And then part of like how you use the law to oppress people is you also prevent them from drinking it. So Kenyans were not allowed to drink coffee or roast it. So that's why that coffee was really just an export crop. It's, it's recently over, over the last 10 years that, that drinking culture has coffee drinking culture has started to come back. But for a long time, my generation, uh, my, my grandparents' generation are coffee drinkers. So my grand, my, uh, uh, grandmother actually used to roast coffee on a pan and sell it in the market illegally. Um, and in my generation, we were brought up on tea. So we're kind of chai drinkers. Um, and, and so naturally, uh, chai or tea would have been my natural go-to uh, to start. So coffee was not on my radar at all until I sort of stumbled upon it um, and it kind of clicked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you did. And, uh, and, and we all get to drink amazing coffee as a result. Uh, let's take a quick break. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of heritage radio network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back. You're listening to Why Food. And my guest this week is Margaret Niamumbo, founder and CEO of Kahawa 1893 Coffee. Um, Margaret, you, you talked earlier very briefly about sort of the, the gender dynamics in coffee. 
uh, and particularly the labor that women do that often they don't see much or, or any uh, payment for, let alone fair payment. Um, would you talk a little more about that, where those dynamics come from and, and how they manifest in, in kind of commodity coffee versus uh, the, the way that you manage it? Yeah, so one 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 of the things that I found really interesting was, um, as you know, coffee, the coffee prices in the market are below cost of production. Um, so the prices that we pay for coffee are lower, that farmers lose money, uh, basically growing coffee. And I found that really weird in a free market. How can, you know, how can people be selling for something uh, less than it's worth? How do they make that possible? And then I realized a lot of that came from unpaid family labor and especially uh, women labor. And the example that I use, uh, so for instance, I mentioned uh, Kenyan coffee is on average, you know, $5 a pound. The global market was a dollar a pound for a very long time. So how do you take something that's worth $5 and sell it for a dollar, right? So if you're a member of a household and you already have your male member of the household, um, and you already have, you know, a coffee a plantation or, or a coffee farm, right? It's a sunken cost. You already have it. Um, and you can deploy uh, family labor sort of for free, uh, usually the, the women members of the household. Then it's essentially you're getting a dollar. Uh, you're deploying $5 worth of labor and you're getting back a dollar. Um, so it, it works out. And in a way, that's how the, the market is structured and, and how, uh, sort of women's labor has been able to sustain that um, that sort of uh, imbalance in pricing for, for a long time. And so when I was thinking about how do you fix that, right? So we can't, I mean, as a small startup, we can't change the coffee prices on the on the market, but how can we how can we ensure that the people that are doing the work can somehow get compensated? And that's how we started with a women's fund where um, so we initially started with, we would give, I was 25% of our profits to support this women's fund. And that fund would actually help the women. It would be a way of getting the money back to the women. Uh, and then without taking away from the men, which is a very um, interesting part of that whole dynamic. You don't want to interfere with the cultural dynamics. You want to fit into the cultural dynamics of that. So we started off with a women's fund. And then over time, we now have a QR code on our bags and you scan that QR code and you're able to tip the farmers. And that, and then now that's how we actually seed that uh, women's fund is uh, we, p- people uh, tip directly to into that fund and we double, uh, we match all the tips. And so it's double the impact. And now, you know, that, that pot has grown and grown. Um, and initially it was, um, it acted as a um, sort of a bank for unbanked women. It supported, um, their their work uh, during the off seasons, and now um, as of you know this week, uh, the women are embarking on a on a project where they're gonna actually buy uh, a milling machine uh, with the tips, and they're gonna um, create a new business uh, in the community that will employ people that will empower them. So it was really seeing how can we use coffee as a tool for economic development. Uh, for women, for economic empowerment of women on the ground and fitting into the cultural context where uh, sort of the men are the ones who are sort of on the land um, and less than 1% of the land is owned by women. 
Is that is that the sound of uh, coffee being poured and roasted in the background? <laughs> yes. Uh, we, yeah, I, I am a, sorry, uh, but I just waved <laughs> waved. <laughs> no, no, no. Keep going. Keep going. It's it's a it's great sound effects. You couldn't you couldn't have uh, couldn't have planned it better if you tried. Okay. Cool. Okay. Cool. Um, maybe what, maybe we will plant more. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what what do your suppliers or your partner farmers? think of that or how how did they react when you kind of framed the situation in that way to them you mean the women were very very obviously excited and very very um appreciative and you know always listening to them you know stories of how they this fund has been able to transform their their lives you know they've been able to you know, invest in, you know, in, in, in their small other business. They've been able to take uh, someone to school who wouldn't been in, in school. They've been able to take care of uh, their family or, or an ailing parent. Um, so it's they've been able to, uh, you know, keep a house. So one of the women used to live in a madhouse, and now they've been able to, like, rebuild housing. So it's listening to these stories of how sometimes we think, you know, $10, $100 might seem like a small amount. But in a community where people live on less than a dollar a day, um, you know, $10, $100 makes such a huge difference. Um, and so I, I wanted to make that change very, very uh, direct, like have the impact be very direct. And then the, what's been interesting is actually the reaction from the men. Um, and so what they've done is now they actually are very welcoming of the women taking on a bigger role within the within the cooperative. And now they actually have days at the cooperative where, um, you know, we all, women can participate in. So if we wanted to have like a women-only lot, um, they, they actually now have a day uh, that the women can come and process their crop on a specific day, and then we can have a women-only lot uh, because that's also becoming something that has a premium value in the coffee market. People, uh, there's a value associated with with coffee grown by women. Yeah, women produce lots. Yes. Why do you Why do you think that is? How How big is the value difference? Um, I mean, it's hard to measure it, but it's definitely more than you know regular specialty or rather it's a differentiator in a way um in the market so if you're think of like you're a roaster and you buy your coffee from um from an importer so you hit you hit up the importer and they you know read out their menu list um and then for for importers um they've started to you know see women only lots and they will pay a premium for that or actually have preference for them versus other lots as well. Because they, I think this idea of, uh, you know, the role of women in coffee has, uh, is something that it's taken time to educate, but people are really kind of starting to understand it and wanting to support it. Um, and so it's, it's really encouraging to see that, um, you know, roasters want to support that and, and encourage uh, women to take on a bigger role uh, at origin. Yeah. Well, and, and on a similar note, I guess you, congratulations, you, you were, uh, you're on the shelves at, at Trader Joe's as the first black woman owned coffee brand uh, at Trader Joe's. Is that right? 
Yes. Um, yeah, we launched uh, last month in May um, in all the California stores, uh, 200 of them, and nationwide over time. And yeah, it was it was very, very exciting. Um, of course, this was for us, uh, it, it was sort of a big win to see because especially for me, uh, when I look at the landscape of uh, coffee ownership, a lot of it is... Uh, not, you know, not farmer owned. A lot of it's sort of like white male owned. And then the makeup of the ownership doesn't doesn't translate at all with the who's producing the coffee. And so for me, that representation was very important. Um, and I was very, very happy uh, for the women that are involved uh, on the ground as well. What was the process as a small business owner getting into a, a huge chain like like Trader Joe's and especially a chain that that in general prioritizes its own brand and doesn't bring in a whole lot of other brands, especially in in coffee, if I'm remembering correctly. A lot of Trader Joe's coffee is Trader Joe's branded rather than uh, rather than anybody else. Yeah, this was their first uh, time actually taking on a private label or rather a non-private label uh, brand into this. So, So it was sort of a double introduction. Uh, so I would say it is, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> it's many months of work. And uh, in a way, um, a lot of the work that we did prior to um, that relationship prepared us for, for, for that prep. And I can say not many businesses would have been in a position to do it. Many small businesses. Um, it's very demanding uh, to go into a big box retail uh, but I think that, again, just all the work that we had done in in building relationships, up to building trust and building community up to that point, it were really useful in um, sort of being able to first uh, demonstrate that we could support um, a retail uh, growth, but also there were other unexpected uh, things that popped up. So an example was, um, it you know it was the pandemic, and as you know, there's been there was like the canal, the Egypt canal was stuck, so there was that delay happening there. And then we get our packaging in China, uh, and then there was delays at the port. Things were taking forever, so you're having to fly things in instead of having them come on a boat. So I'd say it was uh, just a lot of uh, being able to maneuver. Uh, highest, a larger scale operations than we were originally um, ready for. But now, now that we've done it, we feel ready, um, as, and we'll be launching into Target as well. That's another big box retailer. Wow. So I, it was good practice uh, to 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 get started. But I would say it was uh, a big undertaking for a brand our size, as you can imagine, having yeah. to scale uh, overnight. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, were there were there elements of working with Trader Joe's in particular that, that were challenging or different from what you had encountered with other retailers? Um, I would say that, uh, so the, the thing that makes um, Trader Joe's, um, you know, unique from all the other retailers is that they're vertically integrated. Um, so you're not usually de- dealing with the distributors that you would normally be dealing with. Um, if you're selling to other channels, so if you're selling to, uh, you know, Walmart or selling to Target or Kroger Safeway, you're usually going through a distributor because uh, they don't have their own uh, supply chain. Um, and so I think what makes Strategy is very unique is that vertical integration, which kind of fits in with the sort of our direct sourcing as well. So it's kind of cutting a lot of the 
layers that ultimately make products end up on, you know, at a higher price point on the shelf. So very, very efficient um, supply chain to fit into. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, are there are there any sort of easier, easier than other retailers? I would say. <laughs> are there are there any particular sort of uh, piece of advice or or suggestions that you would give to other early stage food company founders who are thinking about launching in the in that style of of big box retailer? Um. Yeah. I mean, we're we're new, and that's what I was saying. Trader Joe's is kind of a unique. It's in its own class in terms of how it does retail. So it's not a good, <laughs> a good proxy for other for other channels, but I would say um, first you you do need good good found a good foundation. So I wouldn't go there as the first stop. Uh, I would say definitely get practice with regional um, specialty. Get practice with smaller. We started our first uh, retail was. Paxlop Cop, <laughs> which we still sell at in Brooklyn. Um, we did um, Cop in San Francisco. We sell at the um, at a Cop out here. So we really started with Cops, you know, regional specialty, and you start to get all the small things coming together. So that when you're ready for retail, it really is a big undertaking. And especially now that we're doing Target, I'm seeing how kind of demanding it is um to 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 really uh, you know service a, a big retailer yeah yeah incredibly challenging we're going yeah. through a, a ramp up for a launch with a big retailer ourselves you know for burlap and barrel hopefully oh, launching nice. at the end, thank you well, hopefully launching at the end of the summer and yeah. uh, the level the amount of paperwork the level of detail i mean the the vendor the abridged vendor manual from from this retailer who i won't name but you'll figure it out in the next few months uh, was yeah. like 200 pages of, oh, wow. of information that we had to internalize and apply, you know, in terms of how, how the products are labeled and how they're boxed and how they're shipped and, and so many details. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's pretty challenging for a, for a small company to, to do that. Um, I guess, I guess the, the other subject that I wanted to touch on, on a kind of a different topic is, yeah. is, you know, you mentioned briefly earlier, the, the question of representation, yeah. Um, and there are not, at least I have trouble thinking of other kind of proudly East African coffee brands on the market. Um, yeah. How do you, how do, like, how do you uh, think about that? How do you build that into your brand? How do you take on that responsibility of representing uh, a region, a, a, a wide and diverse region of coffee production um, and, and also take on the responsibility of, of educating consumers about this, about, about, the coffee from that region, that flavor profile, that, uh, that, that choice that they're making? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I think that's something that I've always been conscious about. First, it is unbelievable that, you know, coffee is in, you know, inherently African, but there wasn't an African brand on the market. Um, you know, same with chocolate, right? Uh, Africa is the biggest producer that isn't, um, an, an African you know, chocolate brand um, that's internationally renowned. Same with tea outside of China and India. Uh, Kenya is the largest exporter of tea in the world. Uh, so if you've drunk black tea, you've probably drunk Kenyan tea. But again, there isn't um, a renowned brand. So that's something that I wanted to really center. I wanted to center um, the origins of the product. So if you look at our branding, even our name, Kahawa, means coffee in Swahili. Um, so that's something I wanted people to become familiar with the origins of 
kahawa and know that kahawa is coffee the same way that chai is tea. Um, and, and even our packaging, we really, pl- you know, want to, uh, you know, bring kind of the beauty of the African landscape to the core um, and really educate people about uh, where the, the products are coming from. And which reminds me, um, you haven't mentioned our, how we used uh, Bob and Barrel for one of our blends. Remember when we did the African Spice? Oh, yeah, yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so we're, I'm actually thinking of bringing it back um, because um, I think it's a really interesting way to edu- to share how Kenyan coffee is, is consumed. So um, I, I get a lot of questions about like, what's the Kenyan coffee culture? How do people drink Kenyan coffee in Kenya? Um, and then one of the uh, coffee products in Kenya is called Kahawa Chungu, which is like bitter coffee, where they take coffee and they put cardamom and cinnamon in it. And so that's one of, that's why we used to have the African spice and something that I want to bring back again uh, at some point using, uh, obviously, the the yucadamon and cinnamon, which oh. are the most delicious spices. <laughs> Every time I like introduce people to them, they're like, oh my God, what have I been drinking? So uh, I'm always like, I'm like the biggest evangelist. For Amazing. It. Thank you. Well, any, any time let's make a, let's make an African spice coffee. I'm, I'm down. <laughs> yeah, it'll be great. But yeah, so I think it's in, in our products. Um, we, we like to showcase other African ingredients showcase African culture, the bright, um, you know, bright and lively culture, the landscape, um, all of that. So I view myself almost as an ambassador for, um, for African culture on the global stage. Is that, is that, uh, I mean, that's a lot to take on as a, especially as a small company where you have so many things to juggle and think about and supply chains and packaging and processes and, you know, getting your invoices paid and all of the other things. How do you, so how do you sort of make sure that you don't lose track of that goal as as you go through the details of, of the day-to-day running of the business? Uh, I mean, I feel like that's always going to be a tension. Um, I always thought, you know, the more the bigger we get, the more resources we get, I'll have more time to indulge. <laughs> Famous <laughs> last words. <laughs> but it gets worse, right? It and does. You, it really does. You get far and farther away. Um so I think for me now, I am kind of starting to set out time um, specifically to involve myself in that and also making it clear, um, you, you know, as more and more people uh, get, in, get their hands on the brand and start to interpret for themselves, kind of keeping that as sort of the key non-negotiable <laughs> part of the brand uh, that we can dilute uh, over time. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, we're running a little low on time, so let's do some fun rapid fire questions and then we'll, uh, then we'll wrap up. Are you ready for, ready for some? Yeah. All right. Yeah, I'm ready. Um, what did you eat for breakfast or lunch growing up as a kid? What was like a, a normal meal in your, in your family? In Kenya, we have, uh, something called ugali, which is uh, almost like hardened porridge. Um, it's very similar to arepas. So I, in the U.S., I eat arepas as a replacement for that. It's like hardened maize meal. So you eat that with a stew and with kale that's um, sautéed. That was, uh, you know, uh, our lunch or dinner, a quick lunch or dinner meal. Yeah, almost like a polenta texture, sort of like a yeah. a little um, a little uh, yes. sort of, uh, chewy like the, that. And then you have the green from the kale, and then or collard greens. Um, 
and then you have uh, some stew from uh, either goat or or uh, you know beef. Sounds sounds delicious. Um, yeah. What are your uh, uh, what are your desert island? I, I usually ask what are your desert island kitchen tools, but uh, what are your desert island uh, kind of coffee brewing tools? What's your what's the most important part of your coffee brewing routine? I would definitely bring a French press <laughs> because um, if I can get, you know, hot water somewhere and, uh, you know, ground coffee somewhere, I'll be able actually in a desert island. If I have a stone, I can grind the coffee. <laughs> so if I'm on a desert island, um, I would definitely always want a French press because I could always heat up water and I can always grind the coffee. But the French press is still one of the oldest ways of making coffee and i still find it very very um you know refreshing is that your preferred method when you're making coffee for yourself at home uh i actually rotate i go through like uh seasons um but currently i've been enjoying i like it much for the uh, medium and darker roasts um so now i'm in that phase so when i'm doing single origins and sort of lighter roasts i like the pour over the v60 is my favorite pour over and then when I'm doing medium and darker roasts, uh, I like the the French press because it keeps the oils and and the body. It has a bigger body. Got it. Um, let's uh, let's wrap up there. What uh, what's your website? How can our listeners find you and purchase your product? Yeah, so you can find us uh, at Kahawa eighteen ninety three on social. You know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, that's K A H A W A 1893. And the website is uh, kahawa1893.com. K A H A W A 1893.com. And uh, for those people in California, we do have our coffee available on the Trader Joe shelves. Um, and hopefully in more places soon. So keep an eye out for in, in, your, in your stores for uh, Kahawa near you. Is there a, a particular blend or origin that, that's in stock now that you're particularly excited about that you'd really recommend people try? Yeah, I really like our Kenyan pea berry. Um, it's, uh, it's essentially, it's considered, a, uh, it's considered almost like a def- defect. It used to be considered a defect. It's a coffee. So usually to, in, a, in a coffee fruit, there's two seeds uh, flat, you know, laying next to each other. But sometimes there's like a, in 5% of the cases or less, there's a, uh, berries where only one seed grows instead of two. So the seed is round and doesn't have a flat side. And so though usually uh, those coffees are separated. They used to be considered defects, but now um, they actually are considered very, very special because they have a different flavor profile than usual. So sweeter, uh, more full-bodied. So our Kenyan pea berry um, is one of my uh, really uh, favorite current offering that we have. Wow. Sounds delicious. Um, as always, you can reach us by email, whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. You can reach me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. You can reach Valerie uh, on Instagram at foodie in New York. Thanks to the Red Crickets for our theme song. Thanks to our amazing sound engineer, Armin Spengen, as always. And most of all, Maggie, thank you so much for, for joining me this week and for such an interesting and, and enlightening conversation on, on coffee. Thanks for having me. Talk to you all next week. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. 
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.